think there's a, a problem with the way that the world often deals with wrongs that are committed. Either the world disregards wrongs, true wrongs, as not wrongs. Oh, that's fine. That's not a big deal. That's not actually sin. That's not actually a wrong. Or, or the wrong is so great, so immense, so huge, such a, th- that issue is so big that there's nothing we can ever do about it to make that wrong right. It's like pass fail and you failed. Not only have you failed this test, but you failed every test because you failed this test. And it's funny how oftentimes, oftentimes the things that I get wrong are the things that turn out to be not really that wrong. And the things that you get wrong turn out to be the things that are unforgivable. But this is not God's way. And it's not what we've seen so far in this story, is it? If you remember what's happened so far in this sort of section of Genesis, uh, we've seen uh, Joseph and his brothers coming back together, being moved more and more back towards this reconciliation that those of us who've read the story before know is going to happen, right? And we've seen in the past couple chapters, we've seen God awaken the brothers to their sin. There really are wrong things that happened. We can't ignore those. And we, but yet, we've also, last week, saw God refocus them on His abundant grace. And so the wrongs that happen really do matter to God, and yet we kind of get a taste of the fact that these wrongs don't necessarily have to be a relational death sentence. Everything, last week for the brothers, was going swimmingly well, Right? Here they are in Joseph's house. They thought, oh no, we're going to be killed. He's going to, or he's going to at least assault us, make us his servants, right? Because we, when we left the last time, we found this money in our sacks and he thinks that we stole it. And so they, they go there and they say, this money, you know, we, we found it in our sacks. We really didn't take it. And here we brought it back to you just to prove that, that, that we didn't do that. And the servant, the steward of, of Joseph's house says, no, 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 your God the God of your father has given that to you. I received your money. It's no problem. Like, whew. And then on top of that, it gets even better because then Joseph prepares this banquet feast for them in the midst of this famine. They eat like they, maybe they, have never, they haven't eaten in years, at least two years, right? Everything seems to be going really, really well. And it says at the end of chapter 43 that they were merry, right? We almost expect Joseph at this point to stand up and announce, guys, brothers, it's me. It's Joey. Hey. I don't know that he went by Joey, but whatever. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at this point. And it makes us wonder why. Why? 
I think it's because true repentance always precedes true reconciliation. And Joseph wants true reconciliation. Let me be clear. We're not talking about easy repentance and easy reconciliation. Nor are we talking about perfect repentance and perfect reconciliation. But we are talking about true repentance and true reconciliation. Now, I don't know if these words are the best words to use for it, but let me explain the concept really quick before we jump into this passage. Easy reconciliation overlooks everything. Easy repentance overlooks everything. Perfect repentance and perfect reconciliation overlook nothing. In fact, not only do they overlook nothing, but there's nothing you can do to actually make up for it, right? Because those things are too big. Easy repentance admits as little as, as is needed, as little as possible to try to kind of get to the next step, right? Perfect repentance, there's, ne- there's never enough we can do. There's ne- we can never repent enough. We can never uh, get specific and nuanced enough, enough into each of the details of every little thing that we did wrong to repent of all the little things. Someone's always remembering something that we don't remember, and we need to repent of that too. Easy is no standard at all. Perfect is a standard that no one can hit. So the question is for us, and I think what we, well, hopefully I'll be able to illustrate from this passage is, the question is this, what should we do then about our past wrongs? What should we do then about the past wrongs that are done to us? Because the way it tends to work out is when I have wronged you in the past, I want it to be easy repentance and easy reconciliation, right? But you want it to be perfect repentance and perfect reconciliation. When someone's wronged us, we want it to be perfect. They got to get, they got to check all of our little boxes just right and just the way that I think it ought to be done. But when we're the one that's done the wronging, we would prefer it to be easy. But what God is looking for is true repentance in order for there to be true reconciliation. And what we'll see is that past sinful responses need to be replaced with self-sacrificial love. In order for true repentance to result in true reconciliation, past sinful responses need to be replaced with self-sacrificial love. And we're going to see this in two steps. One, the acknowledgement of guilt, and two, the altering of behavior. All right. Acknowledging our guilt. You see, rather than revealing himself, Joseph gives the brothers the grain that they came for. Again, he puts the money in the mouths of the sacks, just like he did the last time, but this time he puts his own cup in Benjamin's sack, his own personal cup. You remember when they were eating it said that, that the brothers were all seated at one table at the feast in Joseph's house. The Egyptians were seated at another table because Egyptians can't eat with 
with Hebrews. It's an abomination to them. And then Joseph is over here sitting at his own table because he don't belong with the Egyptians because he's a Hebrew and they know it. But then also he's not sitting with the brothers because he is the ruler of all of Egypt. He ain't going to sit with these 11 schmucks, you know. And so from his table, then the food is delivered to the other tables. And in his table, he has his cup that he drinks from. You remember the cupbearer in prison who would check to make sure what Pharaoh drank was good and right, not poisoned. My guess is Joseph has his own cupbearer. He only drinks from his cup, but he puts that cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he lets them go. He lets them go and waits a couple minutes. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, now go get them. Now go chase them down. And we might think, man, Joseph is kind of, he's kind of being a hard nut about this, right? Come on. That's kind of mean. Put the cup in the sack and then wait 10 minutes and then send someone to chase him down. But we need to look at the whole context of what's happening. Joseph has revealed a heart of grace towards his brothers. He's not looking for perfect repentance, but he is looking for true repentance, and it hasn't happened yet, or it hasn't been seen yet. For reconciliation to happen, overlooking wrongs is almost always necessary. We need to understand that. For reconciliation to happen between two people where wrongs have happened, overlooking some wrongs is almost always, I would say always, but I want to just be careful to not use the wrong word. Uh, So we'll say almost always necessary. I wonder how many terrible things Joseph's brothers said to him 20 years prior that, that his brothers never will particularly confess, that, that perhaps they all can't even remember all of the different things that happened in the process of them selling him into slavery, all the particulars that might have stuck with Joseph all of these years because of how incredibly painful that they were. So overlooking wrongs is, is, is always necessary. Reconciliation, though, is a two-way street. If everything is overlooked, that's only going one way. And if nothing is overlooked and everything must be nitpicked, then that's only going one way the other way. Nevertheless, to some degree, the past sins must be brought out and guilt must be acknowledged, not just individually, but, but also with all of those involved. And so when it comes to acknowledging our guilt, there's a few things that I want you to remember. The first thing I want you to remember is this, that God may use new problems to reveal past sins. You see, when we've wronged someone in the past, and sometimes we move past that and we forget certain things, or we just choose to stuff them down, we choose not to recognize them, we choose not to remember them because even our own sin is painful to us to remember. And so what God does is He brings new problems to reveal to us or to re-reveal to us past sins. Now, I want to say on the outset that this story, I believe, is descriptive and not prescriptive, okay? 
And what I mean by that is it reveals certain principles for repenting and, and for the, the uh, outward display of that repentance to others that is helpful to us, even necessary in reconciliation. However, I don't believe that this passage is, uh, uh, we shouldn't take it as a model in the sense that we need to be Joseph and create a situation in which we test out the repentance of someone who's wronged us, Okay. Like, this is a very unique situation where God has put Joseph in a particular position. And in order for uh, someone to display their repentance for some way that they've wronged us, we don't need to orchestrate some sort of test. That's what I'm saying. In fact, I would argue that even in this sense, though God does use Joseph in the process, the text is pointing to the fact that it is God who is orchestrating this test, not Joseph on his own. That God is the one that's providentially putting these things together. And yes, Joseph is an actor in that, but God is the actor. God is over the famine. God brings the brothers to Joseph at certain times. We're left with this sense that God is guiding Joseph's heart and actions. In fact, twice in this passage, it talks about the cup being used for divination, right? And there's a lot of scholars kind of wonder, what, what in the world is going on there. And it, it would be that, that in, in Egypt, the cup that you would drink from, you'd also use to kind of uh, do magic and, and kind of channel the Egyptian gods. But we know that's not the gods that Joseph follows, right? We know from the narrator of the story that Joseph sees God Almighty as orchestrating all of these things. And so what I think it's pointing us to is the fact that not that Joseph somehow uh, has some sort of magical power to know that you took my cup and that it's in Benjamin's sack or whatever, but that Joseph sees all of these things as being providentially orchestrated by the true God over all of those Egyptian gods. Even in verse 9, look at verse 9, it says that when, when the brothers are confronted and they say, hey, someone stole the cup, and they say, no, we didn't we didn't do it. Look, we brought the gold and silver back last time. Why would we then turn around and take something now? And they say what? In verse 9, they say, if it's found, that person will die. If you find the cup in any of us brothers' sack, that brother will die. I mean, Joseph could not have imagined how perfectly this would work out, right? He couldn't, have, he couldn't have known that they would actually make that vow that would so perfectly orchestrate what God is trying to orchestrate. And what is it that God is trying to orchestrate? A situation that mimics the situations the brothers faced with Joseph 20 years prior, right? Even though the brothers say the person with the cup should die, the steward says what? He says, yes, yes, I'll take what you're saying. Let him become a slave in Egypt. And you're like, wait a second, that's not what he said. He said die, and you change it to slave. And I think that's a representation of Joseph's grace towards them. But the point being, just as Judah had said, hey, let's sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt for some money. Now they're faced with a situation where Benjamin will be made a slave in Egypt as well. And what will they do? What will they do this time? 
Okay, second thing that I want you to understand about acknowledging our guilt, don't let false accusations keep you from examining yourselves. Don't let false accusations keep you from examining yourselves. Listen, it's okay to defend your innocence. In fact, that's actually good. Otherwise, we may subvert justice. When you confess guilt, when you're actually innocent, you subvert justice by taking away from the person who's actually guilty of that thing, right? By fooling the person who was wronged into thinking, you did it, and thus you've now said you did it and admitted it, and so justice is served when in reality it's not actually served, right? Just because you've, but just because you've sinned sometime or some way against someone doesn't mean you ought to accept guilt for anything. Does that make sense? Just because I've wronged you in some way doesn't mean that anything that you bring up, I need to say, okay, yeah, I did that too. Yeah, okay, yeah, I did that too. No. The brothers have gone out of their way to show their innocent by, innocence by bringing the money back that it looked like they had stole the prior time, right? And in verses 8 and 9, they say, how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? All that being said, we shouldn't let what includes false accusations or false assumptions keep us from still examining ourselves when we're in that situation. Someone may accuse us of something that in part or even largely is wrong. They may say, you did this, and we go, no, I, I didn't. I didn't do that. And it's not wrong to defend yourself, to say, here, let me show you why that wasn't something I did. However, don't let your adamacy towards innocence keep you from seeing some other flaw that may need to be corrected. That accusation may actually reveal to you something else going on in your heart, some other piece that, that you have actually done wrong. And too often we, even as Christians, in our desire to defend our innocence in a situation, fail to recognize that maybe there is some guilt there that I do need to confess. That God may be using this false accusation to reveal to me something else that's going on in my heart. Let me illustrate it this way. Earlier this fall, a few weeks ago, we went to Cider Hill uh, to pick apples, right? So if you've been there, you picked apples, you know, you, you, you go around and you look on the trees and you're looking for good apples, right? It's not like at the store where they, you know, you just assume all the apples in the bag are, are good. And so you're, you're, you know, you're going through and you're picking the apples and, it, and, you know, it's a whole, whole lot of fun, right? And you put them in your bag and you bring them home and the apples are great. But, you know, every once in a while, you know, you pick apples like that and you find an apple with a little spot on it or whatever. And that's fine. And, and so we had this bag of apples we had picked, and, and I grabbed one out, and I looked the apple over, and I see this little spot, and I think, yeah, you know, whatever, a little spot, the rest of it looks really good. And so I take a knife, and I kind of cut that spot off, right? And, and I go to eat the apple, but then, for whatever reason, I stop 
for a second this time, and, I, and I'm kind of like, huh, something about this just seems different. And so I take my knife, and I sit the apple down, and I slice it right down the middle. And you know what I find right in the middle? Little bitty worm right there in the middle. The tiniest, the tiniest little hole in the spot on the apple. And in the middle, this chunky little worm. <laughs> right? How, I don't even understand how the worm got into the apple through such... You know how? Because he wasn't that big when he got into the apple. He'd been eating the apple, and he's been getting bigger on the inside, right? Here's my point. There is a point to this. Someone might say, you're a bad apple. And that's a, that's a false accusation and a false assumption. That really, truly is a false accusation and a false assumption, an exaggeration. But if you don't take the time to turn the apple around, you may miss the little spot that's there. And if upon seeing that little spot, you don't take the time to slice to the center of the thing, just to make sure, you may carry on looking okay for some time when God is alerting to you that there is something in your life that's eating your heart out. God can use someone making a big deal out of a small thing to reveal a small thing that actually will become a big thing. And so pay attention. Even when false accusations come, pay attention because God may be using it. So here's an important turn in the story. They get back to Joseph. It's no longer the brothers responding. It's Judah now responding, taking the lead as representative of his brothers. He recognizes that despite their innocence, in this particular instance, the hand of God is at work, and God has found out the guilt of his, your servants, it says. What once they confessed when they thought that Joseph didn't understand what they were saying, that they, had, that they, that they were under the hand of God, under God's justice and judgment because of what they had done to Joseph, now, though not specifically, they say directly to him. They recognize. A false accusation here finds out a greater falsehood previously. An injustice here has found out a greater injustice in their life. Which was worse? Being falsely accused of taking the cup or falsely telling your father your brother was eaten by a beast when you sold him into slavery. And Judah realizes, and he says, man, we're guilty. We're not guilty of that, but we are guilty. They didn't steal Joseph's silver or gold 20 years ago, but they did steal his life for silver and gold. And so the last thing that I want you to remember in terms of acknowledging guilt is this. You've got to accept consequences. If, if you don't accept consequences, you haven't truly acknowledged your guilt. One of the key signs of repentance is a willingness to submit to the consequences that come from those past wrongs. 
And Judah says to Joseph, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He says, you are the authority over us. We are truly guilty. Whatever consequences come, may them come may they come to all of us because we are all guilty and i don't i don't believe that judah like i said is confessing to taking the gold or the cup he's confessing to what happened 20 years ago and he's accepting the consequences as representative to all of his brothers being that we have no indication that any of the brothers objected to this to his statement we can assume that all the brothers are behind him going yep that's true and there are times in which our innocence cannot be proven, and that's gonna, that will drive us nuts sometimes if we don't remember two things. First, that even if we're guilty of a particular offense, we've been guilty of plenty. We've been guilty of plenty before God, and God may bring consequences for those wrongs. Are we willing to accept them wherever they come from, whatever they are? And second, second, it's going to, it would drive us nuts if we don't also remember that we can throw ourselves at the feet of God's sovereign mercy. Remember what Jacob prayed before they left? May God be merciful to you in front of that man. And I believe Judah remembers that prayer and says, all right, all right, Father, Jacob, I trust you when you trust the, your God, and, and I'm going to throw myself at the feet of this man, trusting that God will be merciful here, and, and to whatever degree God in his mercy chooses to be. Mercy they do get from Joseph. In verse 17, Joseph says, no, no, I won't keep you all as slaves just Benjamin. The rest of you can go in peace. And in one sense, that's mercy, because they all don't have to be slaves. But of course, they can't go in peace, not as long as Benjamin isn't with them, because they know what will happen to their father. And that brings us to this critical turning point, to the climax of the text. The brothers' hearts, I believe, are repentant for what they did to Joseph all those years ago, but will that repentance be demonstrated? You see, repentance is an inward event that happens, but that inward repentance will show itself in outward actions. It will show itself in changed behavior. And so the second response that we have to make to past wrongs is this, we've got to alter our behavior. And the altering of our behavior, it needs to start with an altering of our mindset. We need to see the new problems that we're facing as opportunities rather than as obstacles. You see, Judah, his process of repentance started all the way back when he was confronted by Tamar. Do you remember the story? What was it, in chapter 38, I believe, or 39, if I can't remember my chapters now? And Judah, his daughter, or Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, he's wronged her in, in a serious way, and She ends up pretending to be a prostitute and becoming pregnant by Judah. And, he, and she takes certain items as pledge, right? Pledges that he'll pay her. 
And then when he finds out that she's pregnant and he goes overboard and says, let's bring her out and let's, let's kill her, she sends those things and says, hey, I'm pregnant by whoever these are. And he realizes that they're his. And he says, what? She's more righteous than I am. And his repentance seems evident as he talked with Jacob and offered himself as a pledge this time for Benjamin. But will he follow through? See, for us, I think we get frustrated when we've changed, when we know that our hearts are different, when we, when we know that, we've been, that we're repentant, and yet someone else wants to see that displayed. And we may turn to the other person, the person that we've wronged in the past, and we might say, don't you trust me? I've changed. Don't you trust me? And that person says, no, of course I don't. And if you were in my shoes, you wouldn't trust me either because you wronged me. True repentance is different than rebuilding trust. And so we can be annoyed or we can see it as an opportunity to display the work of God that He's done in our life. Situations like this we can be annoyed with. Don't you, don't you get that I've changed? Don't you understand that my heart is repentant? Don't you understand that I don't do that anymore? And we can see it as an annoyance when someone says, actually, I don't know that. Or we can see it as an opportunity to bring glory to God by revealing the change in our life because of the change that He has wrought in our hearts. I think of it like a student who takes a test. I don't know if you ever had a teacher who, who was one of these teachers that would give you a test and then, and then you would had the opportunity to retake the test. You, you could kind of retake the questions that you got wrong. And you go, and a lot of times for me, it was like, I, I, I'm fine with my grade. I, don't, I actually would rather not waste the time on retaking the test, you know? Like, I'll take the 80. It's fine. That's good enough. Carry on. I'd rather have this half an hour of my life back. But the teacher does that. Why does the teacher do that? Just, is it just purely in order for you to improve your grade? Well, if it was just purely to improve your grade, what does that, what does that matter? No, rather the, a good teacher does that in order to ensure that the teacher knows you get the concept so that when the teacher begins to teach other concepts, they can actually build on the previous ones, Right? Because they actually want you to know the thing that you're supposed to learn and to be able to see that you actually know it. You see, so often I'd be like, oh, I see what I did wrong. Why do I need to retake this test? I get it. And, but the teacher's going, no, but I need to see that you see. I need to know that you know so that I can teach you other things. So, our mindset needs to change. We need to see it as opportunity, not an obstacle. The second thing is this, our motivation needs to change. The motivation is doing right, not producing results. Judah isn't trying to manipulate or to convince Joseph of something. First off, because he doesn't even realize it's Joseph. And that's the genius of what God did in this situation, right? You see, we... We are to do the right thing because it's the right thing, because we really have changed, because God really has changed us. True character change will be proved out in our conduct no matter if the right person sees it or not. 
if I do something wrong to you, and I realize that, and I repent of that, then whether I'm with you or not, whether it's to you or not, I will change my behavior in those situations, right? Even if it's to another person. Second, we know that the motivation is to do right, not to produce results, because Judah actually doesn't have any reason to think that his plea to Joseph will work. He has no reason to think that Joseph's going to say, oh, well, gosh, you're such a nice brother for offering yourself. I guess I'll just let you all go. Thanks for bringing my cup back. Like, he has no reason to believe that that's what's going to happen. And so his passionate, well-worded plea in verses 18 to 32 reveals that he does it because it's the right thing to do. Because he loves his brother. Because he loves his father. And he knows what will happen to his father. And because he gave his father his word. And he will follow through on that pledge. Even if he didn't follow through on the pledge that he made to Tamar. Remember? Remember how quickly he abandoned it? Remember how quickly with Tamar he said, ah, we can't find her. And if I keep trying to find her with this sheep that I promised her to get my stuff back, my pledge back, then we're going to get really embarrassed. It's going to look really bad in front of, we're going to look bad in front of everyone else. But that's not what Judah does here. He keeps his word, even at the cost of his life. So verses 33 and 34. Here's what Judah says. Now therefore, please, just stop for a second and think about the situation, the emotion, the risk, the consequence, the heaviness. The tears that I'm sure are in Judah's eyes as he pleads, now therefore, please, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I imagine him choking on those words as he tries to get them out. This is not lip service. It's not the kind of love that only goes so far as it's easy or it brings a good return to us. It has substance. It has substance. Listen, on the one hand, we don't have to offer ourselves to death or slavery to reveal our altered behavior to those we've wronged, right? I'm not suggesting that, hey, you need to repent to someone, so you need to show them that you're willing to die if they don't accept your repentance or, or, or something. 
But for Judah, that actually matches the sin of his past to Joseph, does it not? And it's actually what's needed in the current situation. On the other hand, we don't reveal repentance and earn back trust by merely performing common niceties. And Christians, we need to understand that. We don't reveal repentance and earn back trust by doing common niceties that that any old person might do. If my son lies to me, he doesn't show me his repentance by saying, I love you, Dad, even if that's true and a good thing to say. No, he earns trust when he tells me the truth and it doesn't benefit him. That earns trust. When someone gossips about me behind my back, they don't earn my trust by, tr- by, by, by complimenting me to my face, right? Because I'll likely just assume that that's flattery. Just, just a disguise for their continued gossip. They earn it back when they're willing to come and have an uncomfortable conversation with me and say, I was thinking this, but I didn't want to say anything to anyone else. I wanted to come straight to you, even though it's a hard conversation. They earn it when I see them not gossip about someone else when they have the opportunity to. When someone lashes out in anger against me and sins, it's not gifts given in good moments that earn back trust, is it? It's curses withheld in bad moments that reveal the change of behavior. We need to remember this. We need to remember that showing our repentance, it costs something. It's hard. It will be hard. Bottom line is this. Where once sin hid, self-sacrificing love needs to be found. But here's the problem. You can't pass that test. I can't pass that test. I can't do it well enough. You can't do it well enough. I can't do it consistent enough. You can't do it consistent enough. There's not enough that Judah can do here to be sufficient for Joseph. You see, sometimes we might do enough to assuage a particular victim, but our motivations are often, you know, Motivations can often be wrong, but even if they're right, we just, we just are unable to do it consistently enough. And when others wrong us on, on our own, we fail to receive that repentance. We'll continue to heap on those who offend, offended us. Like the world, we can keep making them kind of retake the test over and over and over again because, because to us, they, they've, once they've failed it, once they've always failed it. And so it's not just Judah's replacing his sinful response with a self-sacrificing response. It also takes Joseph as well. But in the end, it ultimately, we can't do enough because, because we've wronged God as well. Our offense against an eternal God is, is too great. But Judah here, he serves as a forerunner to the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. 
the one who would willingly pledge himself and be a substitute for his brothers, for us. Are you willing to acknowledge your guilt and your need for Christ to pledge his life for yours? You see, the reality that God has pledged himself is the, it's that glue in the middle that makes it all work. Jonathan Edwards said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. We've all wronged God. Are we willing to allow him to be that substitute? Listen, if you, if you say, yeah, yeah, I, I, believe, I'm, I, I believe that Christ has done that for me. I believe that to be the case. I'm willing to, yes, yes to that. And, and if that's also true of your brother and sister in Christ, then let me ask you a few questions. Are you unwilling to sacrifice for them when Christ has sacrificed for you and for them? Are you unwilling to extend to them the love of Christ? The love that Christ himself expended when he bought you with his blood and them with his blood. Is Christ's bride not worth the cost? I want to share one example from the New Testament as we kind of bring this home. Do you remember Peter on the night of Jesus' betrayal? He very publicly bragged in front of all of his disciples, right? He bragged that about his devotion to Jesus, that he would never walk away from Christ. He would never deny Christ. And then, and then he very publicly denied Jesus three times, right? He said, I'll sacrifice myself for you, Jesus. And then when the moment came, he didn't. All the disciples knew it. He knew it. Jesus knew it. And so Jesus shows his self-sacrificing love by actually going to the cross, by actually sacrificing himself for Peter and for all of those who would believe. And then he's resurrected. And then there's a story in John 21. And it's an interesting story. The disciples are out in the boat. Peter says, I'm going to do some fishing. They're out in the boat. They go fishing all night. They catch nothing. Jesus walks up on the beach in the morning. He says, hey, did you catch anything? And they're like, nope. And he's like, hey, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And they're like, Hey, guy, on the, I imagine he's a ways off on the beach. Maybe they don't even know. They, well, they don't know who it is. They, maybe they can't see that it's Christ. And this guy from the beach is yelling, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And they're thinking, we're fishermen. We fished all night. Why would we take advice from some guy on the shore? But they go, okay, well, this guy won't shut up, so we'll just throw the nets in. We'll see what happens. They throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and what happens? They catch a huge haul of fish. And Peter goes, that's Jesus. Only Jesus could have done that. And he jumps into the, the sea and he swims to the beach. And, you know, the other disciples are like, geez, Peter, come on. And they row the boat up to the, the shore, you know. Like, he's, a little, he's always a little excited about everything, that Peter. And they get up there and Peter's already talking to, to Jesus, right? And, and then there's this conversation. And I believe this conversation happens in front of the other disciples. And, and, and I'm, we, we know this because it says that they are all eating this breakfast of the fish that they caught because Jesus said, throw the nets on the other side. And it says that when they all fi- they've all finished, this is, this is what happens. Jesus starts to ask Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? 
And three times Jesus asks him this. And it says that Peter's grieved because, because he knows that three times he denied Jesus. And each time Peter responds, yes. But he doesn't say, yes, yes. Can't you see in my outward display that I love you? Can't you see by my life that, that I love you? Because the reality is, is all that he can see and all that any of the disciples can see is you denied Jesus three times. No, what does Peter's repentant heart say? You know I love you. You know I love you. Yes, I love you. You, Jesus, know. You know my heart, and you know I love you. You know I'm repentant. It's not founded in his actions. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? What does he say? Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. My church. My people. You see, it's not tending and feeding sheep that makes Peter repentant, but it's how Jesus calls Peter to show that he is repentant. And so Jesus is asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? And we say, of course. You know I've acknowledged my guilt. You know I've come to you as the only one who can rightly pledge himself for me and save me. And Jesus' response is this, I know. I know that. But where once you wronged your brother and sister in Christ, now love them with self-sacrificial love just as I've done for you. Let's pray.